hi everyone. Welcome to the second episode of Let's Talk. If you are new, Let's Talk is a podcast hosted by Kirthi J. Arman, where special guests discuss social justice issues, activism, and how to be a socially responsible human. Today, we have Vahini Shori to discuss what it means to be an ally and how to use your platforms for change. Vahini is a rising junior at Rutgers University, majoring in political science. Welcome, Vahini. Thank you so much for having me, Girthi. I'm so happy to be here. Yeah, of course. So to begin our conversation, I'd like to mention that with the growing acknowledgement of racial inequity in the United States, many people are finally beginning to take a critical look at how they may contribute to the systemic nature of racism. As people have begun to introspect, allyship has been a buzzword over social media. According to the Anti-Oppression Network, allyship is an active, consistent, and arduous practice of unlearning and reevaluating, in which a person in a position of privilege and power seeks to operate in solidarity with the marginalized group. What is allyship to you, and how do you see it manifesting in day-to-day life? That's a big question. So definitely the definition that you provided, this day-to-day arduous work, is so true no matter how you view allyship. It's definitely a verb, much more than it is a noun. It's a consistent practice of accountability yourself to your community, to marginalized groups. And in terms of day-to-day life, there's so many ways that, you know, one can practice allyship. It can be, you know, just consistently being that person that holds friends accountable when they say something problematic. It can be, you know, someone that is always reading and learning about systemic issues, promoting voices and art that isn't always represented. It can be educating others. You know, allyship takes so many different forms. And I think the convoluted way of beginning allyship is this idea that you're feeling guilty for these marginalized groups. And I think that a nice clarification when it comes to allyship is that you shouldn't really be doing it out of guilt, but out of responsibility to these marginalized groups. I think that like the point you bring up about guilt is so important, guilt versus responsibility. Something that I have learned is that Allyship is never about the ally, and it's sometimes difficult to not say, oh my goodness, I never thought of that, or oh my goodness, I said something so problematic a week ago and I didn't realize it. And it's like so easy to verbalize your self-awareness, and it's not necessary. You know, it's okay to just sit with it and to sit in that space and just improve for next time, just because those experiences are so important to allyship. It's how you grow. Guilt is definitely a wasted or very unproductive emotion, whereas responsibility is totally what gets the ball rolling and gets things done. Yeah, of course. And that being said, I'd like to bring up the concept of ally theater, which is essentially when people only take a stance on political issues when there's an audience to see them identify as an ally. So that brings us back to that point of making it about themselves when you're in a position to be a real ally, right? So my question is, What is your opinion on social media activism? How does one utilize the platforms they have to amplify BIPOC voices, but also actively do the work to be an ally? It's incredible to think of, you know, the potential that social media has to really affect change. But I think that it poses this interesting obstacle in the way of, you know, true authentic allyship, because we've kind of been thrust into a role of trying to discern who is authentic and who isn't. And then there's the question of, does it matter if it's performative, if the action is being taken and the awareness is spread? Because if I'm being performative, but a follower of mine sees it and it resonates with them and they share it, does it really matter? 
what my intentions were. Things are going viral like never before. I mean, never ever have I ever seen so many people sharing anti-racist resources. I've never talked to my friends about what a food desert is or, you know, redlining or housing policy. And people are sharing it and it's catching like wildfire and it's inspiring and exciting to see. And so social media activism, I think, is an incredible new way, I think, of movements and justice being attained going forward for sure. I think the whole concept of social justice issues going viral is so interesting to me because I think in one instance, it's like, why did it take it to go viral on these social media platforms for people to actually care about it? But then on the other hand, like you mentioned, the information's getting out there. People are reading. People are actually engaging with these things because it's viral on Instagram, Facebook, all these different social media platforms that people utilize, that people are on more than they are reading the news or reading books or articles or things like that. So I think that social media has so much power in this day and age, especially for our generation. For that reason, although the intent may be uh, something that may be indicative of ally theater, the consequences or the effects of posting it on Instagram I would argue can often be mostly positive. I think this is really encompassed in an analogy that I've heard before in the classroom, which is, let's say that a really wealthy person donates millions of dollars to this hospital, and they only donate the million of dollars to get their name on the wall, the wing of the hospital that they're donating to, right? The intent of the person was to just get recognition for donating the money, but as the patient, the person's still going to be grateful for that money being given. So I think with social media, it's kind of similar because even though your intent may be, oh, I want to show people on my social media platforms that I'm actually not racist, the people who actually might click on the link that you post, even if it's like a fraction of the amount of people that actually follow you, that fraction of people would still be learning something new. Also, another point that I just like to bring up in regards to social media is the relevance of COVID-19. So like, I was wondering what your take on that was. Do you think that anti-racist resources would be shared as much if we all weren't in quarantine? That's a really interesting question. I think two things are important. The first thing is that there's an overwhelming number of people who would, you know, regardless of COVID-19 and regardless of the present circumstances, would still be fighting as fiercely as they are now. But I think that COVID has presented an interesting challenge to those who would be out in the streets. And so people now are redirecting their energy from physical energy into educational energy, which is super interesting. And so I feel like these are the people that are making these resources. And then being in quarantine, while some of us may be working remotely, there's an overabundance of time now we're no longer commuting or doing things that you know may have before taken up a lot of our time and so there's this incredible saturation of information that has now hit the internet and so people have nothing more to do than to read it and consume it and then ask questions or you know the people that before would have been out protesting who can't go do that have the time now to write opinion articles and share them i would argue that this is almost more effective or influential because it's been so disruptive. And it's very ironic that it's been more disruptive sitting at home. That question has been asked a lot, like why now? This was a question I was asking myself. I was rereading Ballad or the Bullet by Malcolm X and he talks about 1964 
being an election year. And through my own research, I was just looking at the parallels between 1964 and 2020. And the same issues then were present now. And it was like, what's going to be different this time? And I think COVID-19 has been that impetus to say that there's a shot this time. There's like a real chance. You know, the world is watching and the world has the time and the energy to make something really, really happen right now. For sure. I think that we live in a time that is truly going to be a part of history. So moving on, I think the fear that a lot of people have is not knowing what to do or that they will say something that will be potentially offensive when it comes to beginning to engage in ally work. What advice would you give to people who may be hesitant to use their platform to share anti-racist work? I think the first thing you need to do is analyze your own hesitancy. And, you know, what is holding you back? Is it the aesthetic? Is it fear of backlash? And, you know, why would people have an issue with you standing up for human rights? And kind of just taking that moment and then deciding what your next course of action is going to be. And then not saying something wrong or incorrect. I think that it's so important, I said this earlier, that that is one of the main components of allyship is that you will never do everything right every single time for the rest of your life. As humans, we're always learning and growing, and it's the same thing as a society. You wouldn't be able to learn and grow if you didn't make, observe, or think about mistakes that have been made or by you or others. Myself, I'm constantly making mistakes and I'm so thankful that I have friends that point them out to me and say, hey, you said this and it was hurtful and it was problematic because of X, Y, and Z. The response of an ally should always be, you know, something along the lines of thank you. I'm going to learn. I'm going to do better and holding yourself accountable to that. And it can happen anywhere. It can be, you know, something as everyday as accidentally using someone's wrong pronouns. It can be using a symbol that you might not know the full meaning of and holds cultural significance that you should not be appropriating. It can just be the way that you capitalize or don't capitalize something. But those are mistakes that are made and can be made publicly or privately, but should always be corrected or be thought about. I don't think you should ever, you know, shut down or give up and be like, oh, I can't do anything right. I think the fact that people are willing to be patient with you and to help you is something that you should be conscious of and grateful for. And, you know, to give yourself the grace in saying that you're, you're capable of doing this and, you know, to take that challenge and to continue going. And something my friends and I have kind of talked about and learned about is the difference between a safe space and a brave space. On college campuses and workplaces, we're constantly told, you know, this is a safe space. That usually has something to do with like confidentiality, that nothing will leave this room. Sometimes it implies that one shouldn't become argumentative in this space, that it's a non-judgmental space, etc. But the issue with that is that as a facilitator, even as a participant, you really can't guarantee that someone will not be hurt by what someone says or that someone won't be judged or that someone won't look at someone differently after this. Because those are all very human things. They're all very, you know, innate reactions to the way that we talk and interact. And so it's important to then 
shift that view from a safe space to a brave space, this idea of challenging yourself by entering a space that might not be comfortable for you, for others, and just in general that, you know, this is a place where people can disagree and should, you know, talk about it. And of course, this isn't to say that you should go call everyone out and say terrible things to everyone just because you can, but it's the idea that you should be brave enough to share your thoughts, opinions, experiences, and that one should be brave enough to absorb it and get what they need from it and also respond if appropriate. Um, and just to continue that, because that's where growth happens. If everyone just says something and no one really thinks about it or absorbs it because it's uncomfortable, then nothing is really gained from being there. And so that's another thing that I think is super important about allyship. Yeah, I think this whole idea of leaning into discomfort is really prominent in social justice work. And I think that the concept of a brave space really actually encourages that leaning into discomfort and realizing that Mistakes are going to be made, but the having a growth mindset actually allows us to grow more as humans and become more socially responsible. To that point, though, I'd like to bring up the concept of letting people sit in discomfort. So one thing I've been analyzing or introspecting in myself is oftentimes when I do hear uh, someone say something that may be racially insensitive or I would like them to reconsider why they said that, I tend to kind of like alleviate the situation a bit by starting something like, I know you're a good person, but, or wanting to make them feel comfortable in a moment where I might've felt uncomfortable, or I know that other people are feeling uncomfortable by something they said. And I think this idea of constantly trying to make others feel better while also trying to promote why something they may have said may have been hurtful is super interesting because on one hand, you want to be able to educate and say something and have people understand why. But also on the other hand, it's not your responsibility to make other people feel better about themselves when they did do something that is hurtful at the end of the day. I think one thing that this all falls under is the idea of tone policing, right? And it happens in two ways. So either it's in a way that the person's really defensive about something they may have said that could have been hurtful and it kind of ends that whole idea of a growth mindset and terminates the process of trying to be better. Or on the flip side, which I feel like a lot of people unknowingly engage with, is we tone police ourselves by trying to say something in a much nicer, romanticized way in order to make that person feel better. And it's something that I struggle with personally. Like I'm not saying that we all need to fix it immediately because it's definitely going to take some time. But when I'm in an uncomfortable situation, I do my best to make the other people feel comfortable. And even if that comes at the expense of my discomfort, and this is something that a lot of people are experiencing when they're finally being able to engage in these anti-racist conversations. So to that point, this leads me all to one question, letting people sit in discomfort. Is this something that we should do? That's a really interesting question. And listening to you kind of made it clear that I've been tone policing myself as well the past few weeks and just in general. And I'm kind of thinking that it might be a disservice. Marginalized people and communities are constantly uncomfortable and are constantly feeling unsafe or just not welcome. But it's interesting how quick we are to make sure that others do feel that comfort or that safety when talking to us. And, you know, that cushion might not be 
helpful at all. It might just reinforce the idea that someone is seen as non-racist and so therefore when people when they make a mistake they don't have to worry about it too much because they know or they think that people know that they're not racist anyway or they're not homophobic anyway or that they're not xenophobic instead of saying the whole i know you're not or i know you didn't mean to but just being like hey you said this it was hurtful for this reason let's you know either talk about it or you know i encourage you to educate yourself not mean, nasty, or rude to say. So going back to that brave space or going back to that challenge by choice or growth mindset that if we're going to hold ourselves accountable, it's also important to hold others accountable as an ally. And it's also important to allow others to grow. And you know, that might not be at our pace. It might not be as quickly as we'd like to see them grow, but you know, giving them the tools and encouraging them to do so ultimately is what's effective and what is helpful. You know, is it more helpful to say, hey, you said something that was so terrible, educate yourself, and then expecting them to, you know, do a full 180 the next day, or letting them sit in the discomfort and checking back with them, maybe in a couple months or even years, you know, and they, in that time, they may have read more, seen more, or maybe they don't change their opinion, and that's just a part of the way that they think. Something that I've been hearing a lot and also agree with is that we use being a good person as a shield to kind of reflect from anything that we might have said or done that may have been problematic, right? Like, then it's actually more harmful to your growth by constantly reverting back to saying that, oh, but I'm a good person, right? Because at the end of the day, yeah, all of us have the potential to be good people. What does that even mean? Like, I can't tell you, right? Because everyone has their own definition of what may be good, what may be bad. So to characterize yourself as this quote unquote good person, doesn't really do much. It doesn't really mean much at the end of the day. Like, and this is coming from someone who once like had a fundamental belief that there are good people in the world. And some, and I would constantly be saying like, oh, like I know you're a good person, but whatever. But now that I've been reflecting and thinking about it, I think that saying that you're a good person is more harmful than positive. And it kind of takes away some of that accountability in some regards to like actually doing the work, actually reading and trying to make yourself a better person or realize your mistakes and educate yourself to do otherwise. I love this conversation of sitting in discomfort because it's something that we both expressed not really mm -hmm. doing successfully, but it's something to be acknowledged and brought up. So like if maybe in future conversations is something we may consider doing. You know, if someone is very insistent that they're not homophobic, for example, and they say something homophobic and you say, I know you're not homophobic, but but someone who belongs to the LGBTQIA plus community may not know that person, may have heard this homophobic statement or seen this action and are still hurt, you know? And it's like, if you're not homophobic, then educate yourself and act better to make sure that you are not performing these homophobic actions or these hurtful actions. Because at the end of the day, you know, you still hurt someone. It's, and it kind of just ends there. And I think that's part of the accountability is knowing that, you know, your intention does not in any way outweigh the impact of your words and actions and thought. So moving on, for those of you who don't know, Bahani creates wonderful infographics on Instagram that help people engage with anti-racist work. Her posts about preventing burnout actually went viral with over 200K likes. The popularity of this post shows us that people find burnout to be a relevant topic to think about. 
Talk to me about what burnout is, Vahini, how it relates to activism, and ultimately what we can do to prevent it. Burnout is essentially the feeling of emotional, physical, mental exhaustion after a prolonged period of, you know, emotional engagement or mental. It's present, you know, even outside of activism. It can be the way that you feel after final exams or an end of quarter review or just, you know, any particularly high stress situation that has been going on for a long time. Activism is a long term process. There's really no end ever. There's so many people, especially in 2020, who are like, quote unquote, just waking up or just, you know, getting involved and want to know how. And so they're going full force, waking up early, going to bed late. How can I help? What can I do? And they're just going, going, going. And that's not sustainable at all. Not for a few months, not for a year, and definitely not long term. With social justice work, there's this really popular message that is shared, like the parable of the choir. And basically a choir can sing a song while some members, you know, can take a breath and, you know, others will continue singing. And once they've taken their rest, they can sing again and other people can take a break. And in that way, a choir can go on singing forever and ever and ever. And so it's social justice work. It's important that it, the movement is a lot. In a 2015 study, it was shown that activists who kind of pushed themselves and ignored symptoms of burnout or mental exhaustion, once they had reached that point of burnout, when they wanted to take a break for, from, you know, their particular movement, they never came back. And so it's not really a rest or a break. It's you completely leaving. And that's not sustainable or particularly helpful because now your voice is gone, your work is gone. And so burnout is something that's essential to talk about when we talked about allyship and activism, especially since we see this work as nonstop. And it is nonstop, but we're also only human. And for that reason, we need to take those pauses and breaks, you know, to take care of ourselves. Also, one thing that I thought was super pertinent, and I think that it definitely comes to this idea of burnout, right, is that like you mentioned, so many people are, quote unquote, waking up, right? And we're all getting super invested and wanting to see change immediately. But when you look to history, so many boycotts, movements, protests, they took months and if not months, years to actually see tangible change. So I think this idea of burnout, and it's obvious with the popularity of your post, because it's not only informative, but it's a relevant topic. Also, one thing that I'd like to bring up, too, is the jury of the public, right? So I just would like to briefly reflect on the power of the public and the power of voices when they come together force change. So I don't know if you have any opinions on that as well. It's when everyone comes together and makes it their problem. I mean, that's where intersectionality comes from. That's where amplification of voices that were being ignored come from. I mean, but now when your favorite you know, celebrity reposts it, you're forced to see it and you're forced to think about it and be like, oh my goodness, my favorite singer posted this. They agree with this. Maybe I should look into it. Or maybe, you know, someone that would have otherwise, you know, gotten like three likes or views or whatever, even though they say something incredible, all it takes is one person with so many followers to repost it for everyone to see it. And that's why it's been so disruptive. Yeah, and also uh, this kind of brings up another point. So you mentioned visibility, right? When you're constantly seeing all these anti-racist resources in your Instagram story feed, whatever it may be, it brings some person to think about, okay, this is important. I'm seeing this across my social media. Maybe I should take a look. 
So that brings us to another point that a lot of people are talking about now, which is the concept of feed fatigue. So what do you say to people that are tired of seeing these resources or these uh, instances in the news constantly reposted all over all of their followers and friends' feeds? I wonder if you have an opinion on feed fatigue. I think I definitely have a very biased sample of friends and people in my life, and so I haven't really heard that from anyone that I know, but I know that others have shared that or, you know, I think it's interesting to think about because it's like, you're tired, what has it been? Maybe three, four weeks? And if you're tired of that, imagine how tired of the people that are being marginalized and oppressed are of living it. Of course, everyone might need that break from social media um, and do what is needed to take care of themselves because, you know, while some might just be annoyed at the inconvenience of having to scroll through these resources, others might, you know, be re-traumatized. It's up to us to take care of ourselves in however we need to, whether that means logging off, limiting the time we spend, or, you know, maybe muting certain accounts from our timeline. You know, I don't think there's any judgment there, but I just think it's interesting. It's summer. It would have been, I mean, no one would have been complaining about an excess of beach or prom or graduation photos for the past month. But, you know, we're kind of irritated at resources being shared. I just think that's interesting. And, you know, some reflection is needed there for sure. And I think you bring up an interesting point. Uh, some people do need certain things for self-care, but also I wonder what social media represents in that regard when we do post like that beach pic, for example. What are we looking for? What are we gaining by posting uh, that picture on social media platforms? Is it the instant gratification that we love? It uh, varies from person to person, right? So I'm not saying that like, my take on it is going to be the same as the next person. I don't really know where I stand on that, but I think that reading the room and thinking about the situation from a more holistic perspective is really valid. Social media is great and you learn so many new things from it, but there does come a point where it becomes super overwhelming, even to the person who is like really actively involved and wants to do all the educating. There comes a point where you really just need to get off your phone. So that kind of leads me to a related and our last question for today which is, can you speak to your platform on Instagram? Tell us how you ended up going viral. What made you start posting these infographic posts on Instagram? And kind of give us your backstory. Any exciting people who reposted it? Tell us it all. I've always kind of reposted um, social justice content, information, and educational resources. That like has never been new for me. But in this moment, it kind of came out of a weird place. So I mean, at the end of May, people were, you know, really shocked. And as we've been using the word or term, quote unquote, waking up, people were reaching out to many of their black friends or community members and being like, how can I help? What can I do? What is this? But we know and we've learned that that's not really appropriate. I mean, in the general social justice scope, it's important to do the educational work yourself and not to depend on others to educate you. But we also have this layer of like sensitivity. And, you know, as we've said, reading the room, um, it's not really appropriate to go and ask your black friends and colleagues and community members, you know, what you can do. And so I was getting a lot of questions um, in the beginning. It was like, what can I do? Like, what am I supposed to be doing? Where should I start, um, et cetera. And so I kind of just made this, you know, post of, you know, how to be an ally, like super basic. And so it's been really interesting and exciting to share with people things that they may not have learned or thought about 
before. I enjoy the idea that it's just like super quick to swipe through and get what you want. And it's super easy to share. <laughs> and you asked about people that shared it. Very few of the people I followed were reposting them. So I didn't really realize how popular they were or were getting. A few days ago or a week ago, I realized that I had missed it, but Ariana Grande had actually reposted it. But it's also pretty cool to know that, you know, these people from so many different places around the world have seen it that, you know, resonate with it. it. I mean, in the comments, it's a lot of people just tagging their friends and being like, hey, you need to read this, or hey, I thought of you, or this reminds me of our conversation earlier. And it's so nice to see. And also people saying, thank you for sharing this because, you know, I've been experiencing these symptoms and I didn't know why. I'm in no way a mental health expert. So, I mean, the information there was very, you know, basic and introductory, but it's it's nice to know that it got the conversation going for so many people. I think that the ability to validate how a lot of people are feeling, like I can't even put into words, like how cool it is to make someone's feelings feel valid and also encourage work too, right? And that being said, Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Vahini. Vahini's information will be linked on our Instagram account at Let's Talk with Kirthi, and we will be uploading a new podcast episode every Friday featuring a different special guest each week to tackle another important conversation. Allyship takes a plethora of forms, only some of which we are able to discuss today. It is something we all should engage in out of responsibility to marginalized and oppressed groups. However, we should be ready to listen to others, educate ourselves, and take action to advocate for real change. And with that, thank you for listening to this week's episode of Let's Talk.